and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. It's Kentucky Derby time, and it's my favorite time of the year here in Louisville. And right now, the whole city is all dressed up with nowhere to go. And... (laughs) Well, some people are maybe dressed up. I'm, I am well, not. <laughs> okay. We might be dressed up in our sweats and our yoga pants. We're thinking, We're about, thinking derby. about derby. We're thinking about derby. So I just thought that we could talk a little bit about derby. What happens about two weeks before derby, the Kentucky Derby Festival kicks off. And this is a two week, just celebratory period in Louisville. There are hundreds of of events going on at different times. There might be a golf scramble. There are family activities. They have balloon glow. They have the great steamboat race. They have the Pegasus Parade, which takes place in downtown Louisville on Broadway. And there's also smaller events just kind of going on for the two weeks prior to Derby. Thunder over Louisville is the first night, the night that kicks off Kentucky Derby Festival. There's an air show. There's a a huge fireworks display. I mean, I think when they think the Kentucky Derby, they just think of the the two-minute race. But the two right. weeks beforehand with the Kentucky Derby Festival is such a huge thing here. It's sort of like our Mardi Gras, essentially. Right. So I moved here about 15 years ago. I've obviously heard of the Kentucky Derby, but really had no idea the extent of what was involved. And we immediately fell in love with it. And I began our very first year living here annual derby party. It's sort of a family tradition now. We invite our friends and we do small betting, we drink, but it's just such a fun time. Everyone around town is buzzing the two weeks before derby. I would say most Louisvillians don't go to the Kentucky Derby because it is so incredibly expensive to go if you want real seats. But they do go to racing events several days beforehand. So the day before is called Oaks Day. The day before that is something that people call Thurby. And in fact, there is no school on Oaks Day. I'm not really sure why there's no school. I think part of the reason schools let out for Oaks Day is because, I mean, there's a lot of schools down by Churchill Downs. And I think with traffic and the number of tourists that come in, I think that's part of the reason it's a madhouse and it affects transportation. And it probably is also because a lot of teachers like to go to to Oaks Day. Although Oaks Day has become so popular in the last several years that now a lot of locals are doing Thurby. So they're going- And it keeps moving back. Now it's the Wednesday. I don't know that there's a special name for the Wednesday before. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. One of my recent 
favorite derby memories, which it's not something that's sponsored by the Kentucky Derby Festival or anything like that, but their elementary school, they have been doing this for years. It's a third grade tradition that students and their chaperone, typically a parent, they go on a downtown scavenger hunt on the Wednesday before derby. And that's the day that the great steamboat race occurs. Now the great steamboat race is like at five o'clock. So the field trip has wound up before then, but it's a lot of fun just to go downtown and explore during Kentucky Derby Festival. That's a really fun thing to do and see some cool things that, you know, typically when you go downtown, you're going for an event. You're going to see a play at Actors Theater, or you're going to see something at the Kentucky Performing Arts or visiting one of the museums. So it's kind of fun just to wander in downtown Louisville. One of the coolest things is getting to see the Louisville Metro Police Department check the Bell of Louisville for the race on that Wednesday. So they have a diving team that jumps in the water and they check the boat, make sure everything's okay. So I've been able to see that twice and the kids just think that's pretty fantastic. So for those who so. may not know exactly where Louisville, Kentucky is located, we're right on the Ohio River. And so steamboats historically have been on the Ohio River. And so there is a race between the steamboat that's docked here, and then they usually bring one from Cincinnati because Cincinnati is just up the Ohio River from Louisville. There is a race. Now, it's not the most exciting race in the world. These are steamboats. They go kind of <laughs> slow. <laughs> you know, I feel like this time of year, Kentuckians are looking for anything to watch race. There's bed races. There's a mini marathon associated <laughs> with yeah. Derby. Oh, a hot air balloon. Yeah. Now, I've never actually seen the balloon race, but my kids, when they were little, loved the balloon glow. In a large open field close to downtown Louisville, all kinds of local businesses have hot air balloons. And when it's dusk and it starts to get dark, they won't float their balloons up, but they'll light the the fire in them to get them to inflate. It's just a really sort of magical look to it. Sometimes they'll even let the kids get into the basket of the balloon. You mentioned the steamboat race is slow. Part of that is because people around Derby, people just like to get together and eat and drink. Yes. So that's yes. a big part of, of Derby So there Festival. are a few foods that if you ever come to Louisville, you need to look for, and they are local things. One is a hot brown sandwich, which is basically a hot turkey sandwich, but with bacon and like a very rich cheese sauce and some tomato and... I make it every year for my derby party. People love it. Another one is a Benedictine spread, which is, it looks kind of weird. It's basically like a cucumber cream cheese spread that you would make like little tea sandwiches with, cut off the little edges of the crust. But people put a little bit of green food coloring in it to make it look green, but it tastes pretty good. And then there's always a mint julep, which honestly nobody really likes. I don't think I've ever met a person who liked a mint julep unless they'd already had two or three and then they taste pretty good. <laughs> but at that point, doesn't everything. But the, the drink that I I would recommend, especially if you can make it at home, is a bourbon slushy, which is just basically bourbon and some fruit juices mixed with tea and you freeze it and it makes like a slushy and it is quite delectable. So this time of year is just really special to Louisvillians and a lot of us are sad that it's not happening, but they have said they're rescheduling it for September. So we'll see. We'll see if COVID is tame enough by then that it happens. We are feeling very sad about Derby, but it's the perfect time to have a Derby-themed episode, and so we're very excited to introduce our guest for today, D.C. Alexander. 
There's a collective sigh of disappointment that you can hear in our hometown this week. The Kentucky Derby race is always run the first Saturday of May, except this year. I checked the weather, and it looks like it's going to be beautiful this Saturday, 79 degrees and sunny, and there are no horses to be run. But now that you've had your Kentucky Derby primer from Carrie and I, we can all still celebrate this event quarantine style with a book and maybe a glass of bourbon. Our guest today, D.C. Alexander, is doing his part to help. D.C. is originally from Seattle, but has eagerly adopted Louisville as his hometown. He's a former federal agent turned author who's written several mystery novels with the setting of his most recent being right here in Kentucky. Blood in the Bluegrass takes place the week before the Kentucky Derby and begins with the murder of an up-and-coming horse jockey. But as mysteries often do, things get complicated with horse breeders, bourbon distilleries, corruption, and old money. D.C. talks to us about why he thinks Louisville is a great locale for a novel, what book he read in his 20s that turned him from a book-loathing kid to a full-fledged bibliophile, and how long trips in his car in rural Colorado started him on the path to writing. We are here with D.C. Alexander, who is a Louisville resident, a former federal agent, and an author. And we are going to be talking to him. He's going to be telling us a little bit about his latest book. So, D.C., thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, D.C., you have sort of a interesting background. You're originally from Seattle, and you're in Louisville, Kentucky now, and you were a former federal agent. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be in Louisville. Well, that's a, it's a little bit of a long story. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and uh, stayed there for college and grad school. Met my wife uh, shortly after getting out of school, and really for the past uh, quarter century or so, we've been taking turns following each other around the country for job opportunities, which for me is involved, among other things, federal law enforcement, a stint there. Now writing. Uh, our move to Louisville was actually, it was my wife's turn <laughs> uh, to move for a job opportunity, and she uh, flies for UPS. We, you know, we had lived in other places when she was flying, but uh, once we had our uh, daughter the move here, this made too much sense. She's home a lot more. That brought us here, and it's been, it's been great. For people who are not in Louisville. Louisville is chock full of pilots. UPS is stationed here. This is where their headquarters is. And there's just hundreds of pilots here in Louisville. So that's an interesting story. So did you grow up being a, a big reader or a writer? Uh, you know, it's funny. When I was a kid, I, I just hated reading. I, I hated it. Uh, my parents had to threaten my life to get me to read anything. Even when I was writing book reports for school up until maybe middle school, I'd kind of just, you know, skim pages and, and, and try to BS my way through. <laughs> I don't know, somewhere along the way, a switch was flipped. Uh, it's hard for me to say when exactly, but I was probably in my mid-20s before I remember reading a book and just for pleasure and just truly enjoying it. But now, now I just read constantly. I have, at any given time, I'll have 10 partially completed books on my nightstand. I'm one of those people who will read you know, 50 pages and then set a book down for three months and pick up a different one. And I'm sure there's some sort of diagnosis for that and psychology. (laughs) (laughs) You remember what the book was in your mid twenties that you read for pleasure? What was it? Yeah. Well, I have to give you, let me give you a little context. This time my wife and I, girlfriend at the time, we'd moved to uh, Sacramento, California for a job opportunity for her. And uh, we'd moved in with some uh, friends of hers from college who were already living there. You know, all of a sudden, we were just living in a friend's basement in our mid-20s. We were just broke. 
I was jobless and just utterly miserable. <laughs> this book just, uh, it was Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by uh, John McCarré. And I, I remember sitting in this room that was sort of our bedroom slash storage room. It was uh, this guy's office. And it was just stacked to the ceiling with cardboard boxes full of all our junk. And I sat there one day, instead of looking for a job, I just started reading this book. And, you know, the way he paints a world for you and, and just has all these incredible characters that feel so authentic and uh, complex. It just it took me out of my pit of despair. <laughs> and I thought, uh, hey, maybe this reading thing is, you know, is all right. <laughs> that kind of got me started. And I don't know what you would really call that genre. Is it thriller, suspense, spy? Does that tend to be the genre or genres that you enjoy the most? As far as genres go, I'm kind of all over the place. But I, I loved his writing in that kind of spy slash sort of thriller genre. Although I think his books are have a slower pace than I would normally expect of a quote-unquote thriller but I read just, I'm, I'm all over the place with genres. I mean, I'll read literary fiction and mysteries and the occasional science fiction. So how would you describe the genre of your latest book, Blood in the Bluegrass? I, I think of it as a straight murder mystery. A little bit of thriller mixed okay. in there. <laughs> Amy and I have both read it, but can you give us a just a brief little summary of the book for our listeners? Sure. Uh, well, as I mentioned, it's a murder mystery. It opens uh, a week, about a week and a half before the Kentucky Derby. There are two very tired, very sweaty uh, Louisville homicide detectives who are just trying to enjoy their milkshakes at a local drive-in at the end of their shift. And they get a call to come and take a look at what's supposed to be a suicide at an old tiny shotgun house in southern Louisville, not far from Churchill Downs. When they arrive at the scene, they discover that the victim who happened to be a kind of a rising star up and coming jockey at the uh, Churchill Downs racetrack has actually been murdered and that someone doctored the scene to try to make it look like a suicide. In short, the detective's investigation takes them to a secret, exclusive rich person back rooms of uh, Churchill Downs, the gambling dens, if you will, and out to the great old mansions of the old legacy Kentucky bourbon families and liquor distributors to the Kentucky state capitol, out to farms of the top tier kind of thoroughbred racehorse breeders. And along the way, they just, uh, they uncover all kinds of local weirdness, government corruption, old family feuds that go back generations, uh, secret clubs, and then of course, uh, murder. So we've talked on the show a lot about the fun of reading books in advance of visiting new places in a, in a way to understand that location. Your book, you could almost use it as a map for understanding Louisville since you mentioned so many places that are located through Louisville. What made you want to focus on Louisville and what made you want to write it this way? We love living here. I've always thought of Louisville as kind of a hidden gem. To some extent, I think it's an overlooked city. You know, we don't have a big NFL team or famous skyscrapers or suspension bridges or whatever. So it kind of flies under the radar, but it's really a vibrant place. You know, they say, write what you know. And I've always tried to set my stories places where I've lived or visited extensively. To be able to write accurate, vivid descriptions of setting, I think really gives life to a book from my perspective. And it's fun for me to revisit places at least in my mind, uh, where I've lived or visited. But with, with respect to Blood in the Bluegrass and its Louisville setting specifically, you know, I just come to know the setting through 
informal exploring over the years. We've been here since 2007. And I think with anyone who lives here, you come to love a lot of the local neighborhoods and restaurants and theaters and architecture. And it's just a town that's really bursting to the seams, I think, with creative energy and arts and music and food. So I really wanted that to come across just to convey my excitement about our adopted hometown. Had you already done a lot of exploration on your own just as a result of moving here? Or did you set out as part of your research when you were writing to explore maybe certain areas that you hadn't really explored or been there, but you hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to? Uh, It's mostly places I've been, like especially uh, when the detectives are out to eat or at music venues and whatnot. It's places I just personally love. But I definitely dug a little deeper to you know, learn the backstories of some of the local iconic places like the cemeteries or you know, racetrack or mansions and whatnot. So, but mostly just from getting out and uh, enjoying the area. So I guess because I'm a lifetime Louisvillian, and so having lived here, I mean, there were some things in this that were new to me that I had to look up and go, oh, is that a thing here <laughs> So that was fun because, you know, you live someplace and you think you know it all, but at least in my case, I don't. So yeah, yeah. I'm the same way. I'm not a native Louisvillian, but I've been here for almost 15 years. And there were things that you talked about that I had never heard of. I had no idea that the outlaw Jesse James, that his mother was born outside of Lexington. There's a lot of cool little tidbits of information in there. But the thing that I really want to ask you about is there's a huge emphasis on food in this book. They try all kinds of restaurants. They eat all over town. And so I'm wondering about why you decided to put so much emphasis on the food. You know, I got a little carried away with that probably, but uh, I'm a foodie. Uh, I love the local restaurant scene here. You know, for a town of this size, it's just off the charts. And there's so much creativity with these chefs. I don't know. It's just something I personally get excited about. It's one of the things I take great pleasure in in my life is fantastic food, new kinds of dishes. And, you know, you always need a setting for these detectives to have their conversations and whatnot. And, you know, you can have it in a dirty old Ford uh, sedan, or they could be sitting in a place having a great meal. <laughs> so I thought, eh, let's go with the food. <laughs> well, so, okay. I think one of the things that Louisville prides itself on is its food scene. So I think that that's a great thing to to highlight. But yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed and, that. And with respect to the, all the interesting tidbits about the city and the region, I, I have to say that I I got a lot of that from a, a book called uh, Secret Louisville by Kevin Gibson. You'll have two or three pages dedicated to, I don't know, a hundred different little interesting things about the area, what different buildings used to be used for, or where there was some famous gunfight downtown in the 1800s, or you know, ghost stories. It's a great accompaniment to any uh, travel guide for this area. I'm curious about your background as a federal agent. How much of that experience informs, specifically since we're talking about Blood in the Bluegrass, but all of your books? You know, in a general way, the experience in law enforcement hopefully informs all my writing, especially in, you know, any incorporation or discussion of basic investigative tools and techniques or tactics or like the prosecution process. You know, more specifically, I did a few things in law enforcement. You know, I had a few different jobs over the years, and one of them involved investigating allegations of international trade law violations by overseas industries and and foreign governments. Well, one of my previous novels is called Chasing the Monkey King, and it very much deals with that work and uh, hopefully puts you right there in the trenches of 
the so-called U.S.-China trade war. It involves trade and geopolitics, and love affairs and espionage. And, <laughs> and with, with, with that book, the plot is about 80% accurate or true with respect to things that I really dealt with in my experience in, in law enforcement. Different book, but of all the books I've written, that one is uh, the most specifically tailored to real things I did. So back to Blood in the Bluegrass for a moment, that book talks about a case from the 1970s that I assume must be true about an equine vet oh, yeah. who was in a horse switching scandal. So how much research did you have to do for that or for the book? Where did you turn for information on that? It's funny that my interest in the various stories related to the horse racing business around here, that began with, uh, we have a, a good friend who's grandfather was actually a chemist with what's called the Kentucky Racing Commission. And they've been responsible for decades for drug testing horses, basically. And her grandfather, actually, he was responsible for testing all the horses during the Kentucky Derby in 19, I think it was 69. You know, the horses were, you know, they got their blood drawn or urine or whatever. And then they ran the race and a horse called Dancer's Image one. However, many days later, the results of the drug test came back and this guy said, hey, the horse that, that won the derby had illegal drugs in its, its system. <laughs> so it was disqualified. They disqualified the horse. And so this runner up became the derby champion and all the money had to change hands again or however that worked. But the chemist was fired and basically blackballed from the industry. And I thought that's really interesting. So I started researching the details of that story. The newspaper in Lexington, the Herald Leader, has a lot of good stories about horse racing over time. And that was what led me to a story about this guy, Mark Gerard, the vet, who I think was actually a secretariat's vet. He flew down to South America and bought these two horses, one of which was not very good, and the other was a champion. But they looked virtually identical. So he brought the horses back to the U.S., claimed that the one that wasn't that great died in some sort of accident. But then what he did was he entered the great horse under the other horse's name. So it would go into these races with long odds, been on his own horse, and the horse would blow away the field. And of course, he got caught. And actually, he got away with just kind of a slap on the wrist and was, I think, represented by F. Lee Bailey, the same guy who uh, was one of O.J. Simpson's attorneys way back when. Oh, wow. That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. So there are all kinds of tidbits like this around here, you know. Involving different tracks. And that horse swap, I think, took place in New York at uh, Saratoga and not here at uh, Churchill Downs. But still fascinating to me that you could have a horse swap like that and at least initially get away with it. He was only caught because he put huge bets on his own long odds horse. And that raised a lot of eyebrows. But if he'd just been a little more careful, he might have gotten away with it for years. So your main characters, Laurel and Trey, those are the police detectives, without giving too much away, they discover some corruption. So... I'm curious, is that something that you or former colleagues have experienced, or is that just something that anybody who works in law enforcement is concerned with? I think it's everywhere, it, you know, at all levels of government, local, state, federal, to some extent. But I've certainly seen it. You know, it's technically legal, you know, cases of people with money coming in and donating to congressman so-and-so's reelection campaign. And then that congressman, of course, is in their pocket to lean on federal agencies, as the case may be, to get them to back off of investigations or prosecutions. You know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's hard to say exactly where the line is, like where something like that becomes illegal. But, you know, it's everywhere. And you see these 
government agencies and even law enforcement agencies bending to the will of the legislators or Congress people or whatever who have oversight of the agency because nobody wants to lose their job or get their career promotion trajectory capped or anything like that. So that's kind of how that thing comes in. And I, I've personally, I've seen several instances where private interests would come in. It could be a group of lobbyists or a law firm or something coming in and saying, hey, look, you know, we <laughs> they're not blatant in the way they communicate this to you, but they'll basically make the point like, this is how we want this issue to be resolved or we want this case to go away. And if it doesn't, we're going to cut loose our dogs on Capitol Hill and, and make your life miserable or ruin your career. It's basically always the threat. And they get things to go away. When I was reading it, I was like, I usually don't think of myself as being a Pollyanna person, but I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness, you know, I'm realistic. I know what happens. That part of it really sucked me in and got me, you know, wanting to see justice done. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a hard thing to catch, you know, because I don't know, everybody's answerable to somebody who can be influenced. <laughs> the lesson I've learned from years of law enforcement is that if you have enough money, then you can buy political influence. And if you can do that, you can really bend the law your way. Whereas the rest of us, regular people just <laughs> have to deal with obeying the law. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was interested in your character of Laurel. I really liked the relationship between the two police detectives. For her specifically, she doesn't really have a personal life, so to speak. You know, she puts 100% of herself into her work at the expense of other relationships. And so I was wondering what made you delve into this with her character, but also why you decided to have your lead character as a female. I think with your other books, they've all been male. So I was just curious about your choices with it. Right, right. Yeah, all my previous main characters have been men. You know, my initial thought, like, hey, I'm going to write a female lead protagonist, was uh, came from my wife because she said, uh, you know, your characters are all starting to sound like the same guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought, hey, I'm going to challenge myself, try to write something from a woman's perspective in a traditionally male-dominated profession, which, you know, as a detective, that's pretty classic. So you're going to, I think, you know, in that situation, you have to deal with doubters and added scrutiny that a guy wouldn't necessarily have to deal with or struggle with finding acceptance you know, as a subject that deserves its own show, obviously. But but really, my the inspiration for that, too, is my wife. Again, uh, you know, being a pilot, women are very much a minority in that profession. So that was a big inspiration for me. But as far as having someone just throwing their life into the career, I've certainly seen that over the years, especially in law enforcement. There are people who will just put in insane hours for relatively low pay <laughs> in the service of the government. And then I think that at one point or another, I considered the fact that just the nature of Laurel's life, people coming out of school when she did a lot might have thought, well, okay, now I'm going to start a family. And given her life situation, that might have been a, a harder choice for her given the, the times. So what made you want to start writing novels after being in law enforcement? Was there an event or an impetus to starting to write for you? You know, it's. I think it was just having a lot of time. When I first came up with the idea to, to possibly write, I was actually living in Colorado. You know, I'd followed my wife there. I was just out of law school. I wasn't a member of the bar of Colorado. Make money, I started delivering film and uh, developed photos back when we still did that. <laughs> You're dating yourself, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I just get to have a century mark. <laughs> I, I did some volunteer legal work in this town in re very remote southwestern Colorado, but then 
you know, to make money while I was delivering film. I'd drive about 300 miles a day across southwestern Colorado, crossing the Continental Divide a couple of times. And it was in the mountains, so there was no radio. And I was broke, so I didn't have enough money to buy new tapes or anything. So I would just sit there in this car with nothing to do but think. <laughs> and I just started to come up with kind of, initially it was kind of like scene ideas. Like, oh, this would be kind of a neat thing if there was a story that involved you know, this or that. And it got to the point where, you know, I was really impressed with my ideas. So I took, I took a notebook along in the car with me. And whenever I came up with something I thought was worthwhile, I would actually pull off the highway and, and jot down notes. And then when we were living in the D.C. area for years, that was when my wife's flying job first started taking her away for long periods of time. So, again, I had a lot of time on my hands. I'd be sitting there in my little apartment overlooking the Beltway. And that was when I started to outline coherent stories uh, in earnest. What really got me started, I have to say, was uh, my wife and I were back living in Seattle. And I was still in federal law enforcement at that point. I was just miserable. I had a nightmare boss right out of central casting. And... We had this, our baby girl who wouldn't let us sleep and everything else. Just, I was having a hard time. And so we'd gotten away for a few days to uh, Arizona. From the second we got there, I started fretting about returning to work. And my wife just said, hey, look, you know, you've been saying for years that you want to write books. Why don't you just quit this wretched job and, and go for it? And I'll back you up. My heart exploded. And <laughs> so the following Monday, when we got back to Seattle, I marched into the office and handed in my badge and... Met my wife and daughter for crepes in downtown Seattle and went home and started writing. So, and at least uh, part-time, that's what I've been doing ever since. So you've written five novels now. How is this one, Blood in the Bluegrass, different? Or is it connected in some way to any of the others? No, it's a, it's a standalone story. I wanted to make it quite a bit different from previous stories. This is the first one that really is focused on local law enforcement. Of course, it's the first one that, as I mentioned, that where I have a, a female main protagonist. So yeah, no real connection, except that I hope that they keep getting better. <laughs> Is there any chance you'll be doing another one with these two characters? Because I really did like sort of the the buddy relationship between the two of them. Well, thanks. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm giving that a lot of thought. You know, this area is so fun to write, and I think it's underrepresented in fiction as a setting. Yeah, there are just so many interesting things about this town and region. And I, I like the characters, too. I kind of fall in love with my characters. So, yeah, I think there's definitely room for another book or two with these same folks. Are any of the other ones, are they two officers or as protagonists, or is this the first one that has two? No, it's usually, I'll usually have two. Okay. One is kind of always the lead. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to have uh, someone else. And that's kind of the way it works when you're out actually investigating things is you almost always have a partner along for interrogations or anything, just uh, interview, witness interviews and someone to bounce ideas off of and so forth. The, the nature of the work, you just you spend so many hours with the same person that, you know, it, it can go one way or another. Uh, you know, you kind of end up being like family or, you know, despising each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you do decide to proceed, that might be the twist for a book down the road, you know, because in this, they've got that connection and that camaraderie. So that might be an, an idea for a future book. What is it that either permanently or temporarily pulls them apart? Yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I want credit. Yeah, I'll put you in the acknowledgments there we go there we go that's all i ask i'm not making enough in royalties <laughs> <laughs> well dc we're going to take a short break and when we come back if you are willing we are going to be talking all about what we're reading sure 
we're back with DC Alexander and with Carrie. And I want to know what kind of books you're into today, Carrie. So last night I finished a book, Amy, that you actually let me borrow. It's called The Air Affair by Jasper Ford. Actually, one of our former guests, Justin Magnuson, with the Long Before the End book club, had brought this book up. He had mentioned it on our show, and I read it super quickly. It is a book where you sort of need to know, and probably you should love the book, Jane Eyre. (laughs) It's a requirement? It's, It's a little bit of a requirement. If you have not read the book fairly well, you're probably not going to really get it. On the back of the book, it said, so this was like a review and it said, the air affair is a silly book for smart people. And I would agree with that. Um, It's not going to make any sense if you haven't read Jane Eyre. Like if somebody says Mr. Rochester and you have no idea who that is, I would say pass this book up. The premise of the book is that there is a secret agent. So this is set in 1985, but it's not like our 1985. It's almost like a different 1985 where there are what's called literatex. And it's basically a law enforcement group that investigates literary crimes. There's a chronoguard and they deal with things going on with time travel. So this is kind of a book that was, I feel like written just for me because it blends this sort of sci-fi fantastical world with literature, which is totally like both my jams smushed together in the perfect sandwich. Um, (laughs) So the law enforcement agent, her name is Tuesday Next, and there's kind of this bad guy. His name is Acheron Hades, and he starts committing these literary crimes. And so the first literary crime actually has to do with a Dickens novel um, that I had actually never heard of. So I think it's called Mr. Chuzzlewit. I, I have not read that. But what happens is that initial crime leads into a crime that affects the story of Jane Eyre. And so in this book, The Eyre Affair, the premise is that Jane Eyre, the book, actually ends with Jane going off to India with her cousin, Sinjin Rivers. So what happens through this novel is that the ending, because of some things that happen with Tuesday Next, the ending of Jane Eyre becomes the ending that anybody who loves that book knows and loves, which is that Jane and Mr. Rochester end up being together, getting married, and having a family. So again, if you haven't read Jane Eyre and you don't love that book, then you're going to be like, I don't know what's going on and I don't know why anybody cares about these characters anyway. But I, because I love Jane Eyre, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It was just fun, escapist. Maybe that's why I read it so quickly because I got to escape from helping my children with their NTI work and <laughs> thinking about quarantine. So that that's what I've been reading. So that book, I tried to read it years ago and I put it aside now I know why. It was because I had not read Jane Eyre 
close enough to when I read that book. I think I had read it back when I was a teenager or early in college, and I just didn't remember enough to be able to read that book and it make any sense. So now that I have read Jane Eyre just a few years ago, maybe I'll try to give it another go. Yeah. Jane Eyre is the book that I read at a minimum every decade. So I started when I was 16. I think that was the first time when I read it and I've read it at least every decade since. So my copy of Jane Eyre is fairly well loved. So for me, this was just total fun. DC, what have you been reading? I just finished rereading Dune by Frank Herbert for probably the 10th time. I just love that book. You know, I, I don't tend to read a lot of science fiction, but to me, that thing is just a masterpiece. And it really, there's so many genres and so many things mixed into it in, in a book that's really not that long, but feels like an epic. You have warfare and the science fiction element and family and love and religion and and there, I understand there's a new movie, another version of it coming out with quite a cast. Um, and I think it's going to be maybe a two movie thing over the course of two years. But I don't know if either of you have read that book, but even if people, you know, people who don't care for science fiction, it's an extraordinary book. <laughs> have you read that one, Carrie? I have. And actually, I, I read not only that book, but I mean, it's an entire series. I'm not sure how many books follow that. There was a, I want to say it was a BBC, but I could be wrong, but probably, gosh, it was many, many years ago. There was a series, a a Dune series. I'm not talking about the movie that has like Kyle, what was his name? McLaughlin. I'm not talking about that one. There was a series that was fantastic. My husband had read all the Dune books and then we watched that. And because I love that show so much, I decided to start into the books. So I, I fell down a rabbit hole. So, but I do agree with you. It's, it's a great book and, and a great series. If you have it in you to keep, to keep going. Yeah. yeah. So my husband loves those books and he's been trying to get me to read them for years. And I, I haven't yet right. and I have not read them, but he is getting my oldest son to read it. I don't know how far along he is. I was going to ask you, is the reason that you're rereading it is because there's going to be this new movie coming out or just because you wanted to? Uh, kind of both. You know, hearing about the movie production probably put the idea back in my head. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those books where, you know, every time you read it, you pick up more. Yeah. One of the extraordinary things about it to me, and I mentioned a little bit, is just the the density. You know, it's it's really not that long of a book, but there's just so much revealed in it and so much suggestion of these greater things that have been happening for a thousand years or boy that guy was just gifted in being able to show you a universe in not that many words it really impresses me i'm still so, not sure i'm going to read it i'm not a huge sci-fi person but I, you did say people who don't like sci-fi often like it so maybe i should give it a try yeah, the, the science fiction element of it is really just kind of this, the backdrop, you know. It's thousands of years in the future, and there are these other planets and whatnot, but that's really kind of secondary to the story. It's not a lot of, you know, laser beams and time travel or whatever. <laughs> you know, like the spaceships and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's just kind of in the background. <laughs> okay. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? 
Well, I read a book called Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race by Laura Pryor Palmer. So this is a memoir that was published last year, and I bought it from the local bookstore, Carmichael's. The author was in town doing a, an author talk, and I bought it. I didn't get to go to the reading, but I bought it because it sounded so interesting to me. And it was my intention to save it, to read it near Derby for this year. And I almost missed my window because it's been sitting on my nightstand under a lot of other books and I almost didn't see it but then I did I did see it so <laughs> like I I was having to move stuff around because I had lost something and I noticed it of course you could read this book any time of year because it isn't about the Kentucky Derby but it is about a derby the Mongol Derby and it's dubbed the world's longest toughest horse race so I thought it would be an interesting compliment to read during Kentucky Derby time because the Kentucky Derby is always called the fastest and most exciting two minutes in sports. So the Mongol Derby is an annual competition where the competitors are riding across Mongolia on a course that recreates the horse postal messenger system that was developed by Genghis Khan nine centuries ago. <laughs> and dozens of riders race a series of Mongolian horses. They're really more the size of ponies, and they go for a thousand kilometers, which is about equal to 620 miles across the Mongolian grassland. And the riders change horses about every 40 kilometers, and that's to ensure the welfare of the horses. But it also makes the race more about the endurance of the riders and not the horses. And they have 10 days to complete the race. So to kind of think of the Tour de France, but on small Mongolian ponies is kind of the way <laughs> to imagine it. So most of these riders trained for years to compete in this race, but the author, she decided on a whim two months before the race began that she wanted to do it. She hadn't done any preparations. She hadn't gotten sponsors. She hadn't trained for the terrain. She was looking for supplies like riding boots on whatever Britain's version of Craigslist is. Um, <laughs> but she did have a familiarity with horses. Her Aunt Lucinda was a horse riding champion in Britain. So she'd been around horses, but not necessarily in a competitive way. In fact, her father never really encouraged it because he said that horse lovers have excessive feeling. And so when she was 19 and feeling aimless, wondering what she was going to do with her life, she decided maybe she should do this race. She'd been working as a nanny in Austria. What she wanted to do was go out in the world and explore. As you read this book, you get the definite feeling that she is a free spirit. She sort of has a whimsical nature. So this book is written in an interesting style. I wouldn't say that it's stream of consciousness, but she does write her thoughts seemingly as they pop into her head. And sometimes it doesn't always make immediate sense. Prose is a bit lyrical and poetic, and but you just have to kind of go with it as if you, you were reading somebody's thoughts. Much of the story is about the author trying to figure out who she is. And there's a contrast between her competing in this incredibly tough endurance race with her doing frequent writings in her journal, which happens to be Winnie the Pooh. I mean, she's still only 19. So she's torn between not wanting to care too much if she wins, and then also with the incredibly strong desire to beat the front runner, who happens to be sort of a arrogant Texan. And at one point when she's running third or fourth in the race, she writes in her Winnie the Pooh journal, how the expletive did this happen to me? I'm doing so bloody well. And so this is a journey to find herself and who she is. She says she has no discipline. And she writes, what gave me discipline? 
a journey of my own. So the other part of the story is about the race. And even though the race is very long, the story's full of suspense. It's also a travel memoir because she includes so much about the Mongolian culture that she experiences, especially the love affair that Mongolians have with their horses. And she says that there are more love songs in Mongolia about horses than there are about women. And that horses that come in last in races are sung commiseration songs so they won't feel bad. That the horse is really considered an extension of its owner. And there's a proverb that says a Mongol without a horse is like a bird without wings. So you find out on the book cover who wins this race. So it isn't a spoiler to say that the author was the first woman and also the youngest champion of this race. But as any story like this goes, it's more about the journey and not the destination. And so I really did enjoy this book. If you're a fan of horses, if you're a fan of travel writing, if you're a a fan of just memoirs about self-reflection, then I think you should give this book a try. What what was the title again? So Amy? It's called Rough Magic. And the author's name is Laura Pryor Palmer. Amy, would this be an appropriate book for like older teen or young college student? Yeah, I think it would be. Yeah. I mean, you can tell that the author definitely was at a like a kind of a crossroads in her life where she didn't know what to do. And she talks about early on how she wasn't a particularly good student. She was a little bit of a troublemaker in school. Basically, she just wasn't a fan of of school and, and wanted to explore and kind of do her own thing. But then she gets to be about 19 and it's like she's an adult now. So what does she what does she do? She seems a little aimless. And Mm. so you get the feeling that this race sort of crystallized for her what she might want her life to be. It's sort of her journey to find that. So yeah, you know, if you're thinking about young adult teenagers, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of violence. There's nothing super graphic in it. Yeah. I think it's definitely a book that a, that a young person could read. All right. Well, when we come back, we are going to be asking DC his top five. We are back with DC Alexander, and we're going to ask him his top five. So DC, you mentioned to us that you like to backpack. What is your top destination to backpack and the top piece of advice for someone who's new to it? Well, my favorite destination so far in life is a, it's a place called the Necklace Valley. It's a high alpine valley in the Cascade Mountain Range, about an hour and a half northeast of Seattle. There's a, a very rough trail that crosses small rivers and climbs up giant landslides of granite boulders and takes you thousands of feet up to this just vast glacier-carved valley that's full of little turquoise colored lakes and flanked by jagged mountaintops. It's just a jaw-dropping, gorgeous place if you can get there when it's not socked in by the famous uh, Seattle rain clouds. Despite its proximity to Seattle, you can usually find yourself alone there on a weekday. I think my advice would be, if you're backpacking, do not underestimate the amount of time it's going to take you to get where you want to go uh, when you're carrying a heavy backpack. I've been burned so many times. It's a lesson I have to learn repeatedly. I underestimate how long it's going to take to get to a place where it's even feasible to pitch a tent. So I'll be with some little wimpy flashlight trying to find my way to the, the through the final mile in the dark and uh, thinking I'm going to get you know mauled by a bear or something. It's just 
So always double the amount of time. Get up early in the morning, give yourself a lot of extra time. Oh, and then pack twice as much water as you think you're going to need to. Because, yeah, when you're carrying that kind of weight, everything is slower, burn through water like crazy. But it's still fun. And, kind of. and do you usually go backpacking by yourself? No, no, no. Always with people. Okay. Yeah, usually my wife or a couple friends from working days. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to get my daughter out there. She's big enough now to carry a pack. And yeah, ho- hopefully this uh, Corona business winds up here and we can all get out. So what is the top thing about being a federal agent that you think would surprise people? Um, the training is just a blast. It's, it's like summer camp for adults. You learn to do, you know, high-speed car chases and ram doors in and shoot guns and take fingerprints and interrogate people and tie them up into pretzels or whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Make a bet for mercy. Now, the training is just so much fun, but the job itself, uh, not so much. It's, it's no exaggeration. It's probably about 80% busy work, at least in my experience. And I think that's because there's always someone way, way up in the chain of command who's, for lack of a better word, control freak, who wants to just know what every agent in the field is doing, wants to know every move they make. So instead of using the bulk of your time to actually pursue criminals, you're spending the bulk of your time writing reports and editing reports and submitting reports and having your reports rejected and, you know, having to document how many minutes you're on the phone with whoever and why and what your bench press is and all that kind of nonsense. You know, I'm sure that all came about because somewhere way back when someone, you know, went rogue or did something stupid and and their bosses got in trouble. So now people at the top are kind of, they just want to know every move you make. And (laughs) I think that's a complaint of a lot of people these days. I mean, my husband's a physician and he talks about how much paperwork there is now. My right. friends who are teachers talk about how much paperwork there is now. That must be a the plague yeah. to many an occupation. Yeah. Do you see my daughter too many like crime shows or something? And so I think in her head, she'll think, oh, I'd like to go into and do something like that. But I think she's thinking it's going to be like a TV show. And yeah. <laughs> as with anything, it's like, well, that's the best, most interesting parts <laughs> that they show you. You don't get to see all the boring, tedious bits that forensic detectives or whatever have to do the other 90% of their time. And, and there are you know different agencies or law enforcement entities. They aren't all that bad. And you have that in varying degrees. Anyone who's thinking about that kind of career, I would really recommend that they just go and do an internship, especially if they can do it in a a uh, law enforcement body that they're interested in in particular to just to get a real picture of what, what's going on. And I have to say, I mean, I have some uh, people I trained with way back, way back when, who went into the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as uh, special agents. They have the coolest job I've ever heard of. I mean, they ride around in boats <laughs> and catch poachers and, you know, fly airplanes and just set traps. I mean, it's <laughs> The stuff they do is nuts. They, I mean, all their stuff is part of their training, like riding horses in the backcountry and yeah, high-speed boat chases and stuff. But they have it made, I think. <laughs> that sounds like the perfect job for an outdoorsy person. Oh, yeah. You know, who loves to be out the outdoors. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember getting to training and meeting these people. And the way uh, federal law enforcement training works is the FBI kind of has their training facility in Quantico, Virginia. And then basically everybody else goes to this place in South Georgia. And uh, all the other agencies, because every agency has its law enforcement people. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of this, that there were special agents who worked for 
fish and wildlife. And I started talking to them about what they were going to be doing. It was like, I wanted to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. (laughs) You grew up in Seattle. So what's the top thing you miss about living there? Um, The big things, I think, if I I miss the mountains and the, the ocean, there are a million little things, just little restaurants and hiking trails and but something that always hits me when I go back there is that I realize that I I miss like s- smells, which sounds weird, but you know this is how weird I am about this. When you know the airplane will land in Seattle after I've been away for a long time, and the door will open, and you'll immediately kind of just catch scents just in the air everywhere there that you know, your body just knows like oh yeah this is I'm home. I don't know if it's a combination of the forests or the ocean or you know who knows what, but but it's weird. So they're good smells, not like fish. Like yeah, yeah. Well, you can run into that too. But, but yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, low tide on a hot sunny day is it's pretty nasty. Yeah. <laughs> so, sort of on that note, you like to sail with your family. Tell us a little bit about that. What kind of boat are you sailing on, and and what's the top sailing experience that you've had? Well, we we have a old little podunky boat out there that's just it's like. 21 feet long. So it's just, just big enough to give you the confidence to go out and get yourself into real trouble. It's, it's cute, but it's, you know, it's nothing fancy at all. And it's, I don't know, I think it was built in 1970 or something, but we just go out and fool around on that. Cause most of the waters in the Seattle area, the immediate Seattle area are, are protected. It's kind of a big sound similar to like the Chesapeake Bay or something. So you can't get into too much trouble. As far as, uh, the most interesting experience. One year we went down to the British Virgin Islands and rented a sailboat. There are all these outfits down there where you can get these things. If you convince them that you have some experience, they'll basically cut you loose on these huge. We had like a 43 foot long sailboat that had three bedrooms and just no captain. They just, they're like, all right, here you go. I was a little bit nerve wracking at first. The weird thing is too, they're not very expensive. I mean, it's, it's hardly more than you would pay at a, a decent hotel per night. But yeah, they cut you loose on this thing. And so we sailed around this, the inside of this chain of islands. And, uh, you know, you can go and tie up to buoys or drop anchor in little harbors and stuff and uh, take your little dinghy ashore to explore or get a pina colada or whatever. And it was just such a blast. And we found that sailing these bigger boats is actually quite a bit easier than sailing small ones because they're super stable. A lot of the things that are difficult in small boats are automated in these bigger ones. You know, you can push a button and the sail goes up <laughs> instead of, you know, you getting up there and the wind shifting and the boom knocks into the water and that, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that uh, Virgin Islands, neat thing to do. Definitely a bucket list thing for for everyone who doesn't have seasickness. Have you read the book A Pearl in the Storm? No. It's a memoir. I'm trying to think of the name of the author. Tori Murden McClure. Yeah, oh. she's the president of Spalding University. She sailed, but it was a single-person vessel across the Atlantic oh, by herself. And she was like an Olympic-level athlete in crew, I think. I think that was the sport she was. But anyway, that might be a book you'd be interested in reading if you like sailing. Now, it's not exactly the same kind of sailing exp- that you're doing, but it's a pretty interesting story about her trying to cross the Atlantic. Well, that sounds, that that sounds great. I'm more into the, you yeah. know, sail for a half hour and then have a bunch Get of a pina colada. And... Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what is the top thing you'd like to explore for a novel that you haven't gotten to yet? I would like to write a kind of a dark comedy that's 
not at all realistic. I don't know how I came up with this, but with all my work in different government agencies and then all my modern accidental exposure to uh, people kind of ranting about conspiracy theories and whatnot, I thought I really need to tie this all together. <laughs> you know, there are these conspiracy theories about how there's this one world government out there that's actually secretly running everything, you know, manipulating markets and currencies and generating crises and stuff for the sake of their investments and whatnot. So the premise of this book is that's actually true. <laughs> and uh, my main character is this guy who goes around killing people who have come to learn a little bit too much about what the one world government is doing. But the, the comedy comes in, in the fact that you, what you learn is that the one world government is inept as any other government, you know, and the guy's always <laughs> complaining about it. You know, his computer crashes and they, you know, make him fly a coach in the middle seat in the back row kind of thing, you know, just, just silly things that frustrate anyone in pretty much any job or walk of life. And then, of course, he deals with the fact that he, he has to live this secret cover that has him sort of posing as a kind of a loser. So he's unsuccessful in attracting women. And uh, I'm, still, I'm still noodling this. But, you know, there's so many crazy conspiracy theories out there right now that I think would be fun to kind of tie into this and be like, yeah, that's that's what's going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing about the conspiracy thing, I, I mean, I'm 46, but I, I feel like by the time you're 46, you know, you, you have some life experience, you've worked. Based on where I've worked and the people I know, I'm like, yeah, nobody's smart enough to have. Look at your life experience and the people you've worked with. Even if they're really, really, really smart, they're still human and they do stupid things all the time. Right. You know, myself included in that. So <laughs> let me ask you this. If people are interested in finding your book, Blood in the Bluegrass, where should they look? Well, if they live in uh, Louisville, I would definitely uh, send them to Carmichael's. They carry it. It's my favorite local bookstore. It's a great place. And then, of course, it's on Amazon. And if you don't see it at uh, your Barnes & Noble, or they can certainly order it for you. Oh, and I should point out, there's a, a another book by the exact same name. <laughs> came out the same month. And I, I can't think of the author's name, but uh, just be careful you don't buy that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again so much. I tell you, talking with you has made me realize what a big chicken I am. Because after talking about sailing and backpacking oh. and be a, being a federal agent, I'm like, man, I live a very sheltered life. But Indeed. but that's okay. It's been fun hearing about your experiences. Well, that makes me sound so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not. <laughs> Thank, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And I hope you both uh, stay healthy and I hope to meet you in person one of these days. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.